Let's continue in worship, shall we, by opening our Bibles to Acts chapter 17. If you need a copy of God's Word, just get the attention of one of the ushers, and they will certainly get one into your hands. Acts chapter 17. Paul, the Apostle Paul, as you're turning there, is in the middle of his second missionary journey, his second of three, having just left the city of Philippi on his way to Thessalonica, and then eventually to Athens. And we've got a map here, if we can pop up for you, that we'll take a look at. The second missionary journey started over here in Antioch of Syria, of course, traveled by land through some of these towns here, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and so on. Eventually to Troas, hopped over on the sea to Neapolis, and then in Philippi. Philippi was chapter 16 last week. Then from Philippi, they're going to move, as we're going to see here in a few minutes, through Amphipolis and Apollonia onto Thessalonica. And then from Thessalonica, Paul's going to go on to Berea. And then from Berea down to Athens. And that's where he will end up today in chapter 17. And similar to many passages in Acts, chapter 17 and Paul's exploits there, if you will, is a prime example of how to witness, how to witness, how to share the love of Christ, how to spread the gospel, how to do what Jesus said we should do and would do. Back in Acts chapter 1, you will be my witnesses, my witnesses, how to talk to people about your faith. It's a prime example. And make no mistake, as we get going here, witnessing starts with a burden and a zeal. A burden for those who are lost around you and are headed for an eternity of darkness and a zeal that God would be worshipped by more and more as he rightly deserves. Two sides of the same coin that fuel our witness. Short of that, Short of a burden and a zeal, all the how-tos in the world won't work. All for naught. And so I trust that the Lord will use this to increase your burden and increase your zeal and enable you to apply it all the more as you live your life for Christ and as we, as a church, live our life for Christ. Let's dig in and see what God has. Acts 17, starting verses 1 to 15. You follow along. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, I practiced, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, don't miss that, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't even written yet, let alone codified. And so here he was turning to the Old Testament on three consecutive Sabbath days. It wasn't the, the entirety of, of his length of stay in Thessalonica, which we know uh, based on the implication of his letter back to the Thessalonians that he wrote later in 1 Thessalonians. But we do know from here that on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, the Messiah, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. He's the one that we've been waiting for. No doubt turning to passages like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. Pillar passages in the Old Testament scriptures that show that Jesus, the, the Messiah, 
would suffer and rise again, would indeed die for our sins. Paul reasoned about that, explained it, proved it, and proclaimed it. That's apologetics. That's giving a reasoned defense for your faith, a reasoned response for your faith. Something that we try to do every single week and during the midweek around here. Something I try to do uh, from the pulpit. I, I try to reason and, and prove and explain and certainly proclaim the truths of God's Word. And All of us ought to be about that. Every chance we get as we're going to see here in a few minutes. Verse 4, and some of them, no surprise, were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks, God-fearers themselves, as we've seen previously. And check this out. And not a few of the leading women. They too were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas in believing in Christ. Why? Because the gospel impacts everyone. Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, male, female, everyone. Everyone. And, and no surprise to us, at least it shouldn't be a surprise to us, that not a few of the leading women embrace the gospel and believe because that's what happens in the church today. Women seem to be the first to, to believe, I think, because they have fewer issues with authority than men do. They have fewer issues of stubbornness than men do. Just think about asking for directions. Enough said. Applies to the gospel. And so here we have... 2,000 years ago, the very thing that continues to happen to this day, not a few women, leading or otherwise, turning to the Lord. Praise God for it. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous, and most likely the Jewish leaders, based on how that word is used in other portions of Scripture, and they were jealous, those who didn't believe. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, love that word, the unruly crowd, they formed a mob, don't love that, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And so immediately we get the idea that there's this guy, Jason, who must have opened up his home or maybe he had a, a bed and breakfast or an Airbnb or whatever you call those things these days, v VRBO, I mean, there's so many acronyms, Jason. They were obviously staying with the guy. They went searching for Paul and Silas, verse 6, and when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. May that be said, even in a, a derogatory way like it is here, may that be said of every single one of us. That because of our testimony, our witness for Jesus Christ, we're turning the world upside down. Lord, would you make it so? And Jason, verse 7, has received them. That was his big fault in this rabble that they were. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, you know, a bail sort of situation, security to assure the authorities that Paul and Silas would get out of town and that Jason and his bros would get them out of town, when they'd taken some money from them, they let them go. Verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, indicating that they were more concerned for the well-being of Paul and Silas than they were for the money that they had forked over. 
They sent them by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue again. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Not that they were like of some noble birth in that that sense, but that they were more open-minded. They were more well-behaved. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Stop there for a minute. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Not that they had a critical spirit or thought that they knew better than Paul and Silas, but that they were passionate about the truth. They were passionate for truth. So much so that they actually anticipated the preaching of God's word. We don't know how many consecutive uh, weeks or Sabbaths or whatever uh, Paul was with them in this, but they received it with eagerness, indicating that there was an anticipation for it. If you're eager to receive something, you're anticipating it. And not only that, they studied the word itself daily to confirm what they were eager to hear. It's one of the reasons that I love preaching to you, seriously, because you lean in, you take notes, you nod your head, you say amen occasionally. That's okay, by the way. Just like the Bereans, just like the Bereans, may we be more and more and more like the Bereans, eager to hear the preaching of God's word and studying it more and more on our own. And I think that one of the reasons that you are is because you read the word of God before you walk in here on the weekend and then you go and you read the word of God after you've been here during the week, both and. And so it's no surprise that you're eager to hear the word of God preached because you're already hungry for it because that's what you fed yourself. We are hungry for what we're fed And when we feed ourselves the Word of God during the week, we want the Word of God all the more. When we get the Word of God all the more on the weekend, we want the Word of God all the more during the week. And the cycle just continues to perpetuate itself, eternally satisfying us and making us all the more hungry at the same time. If you're sitting there thinking, man, I, I really don't feel not like picking up what you're laying down, Pastor. Might it be because you're not feeding yourself the Word of God? Listen, what you do in your house determines to a great extent what you'll experience in God's house. Let me encourage you to be Berean-like, soaking up the Word of God like a dry sponge every moment and every opportunity you can, and then searching it for yourself all over again. Many of them, verse 12, therefore believed because they received it and studied it. With not a few Greek women of high standing, there it is again, as well as men. Same as Thessalonica, because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Couldn't get away from the opposition. We're not going to be either. We're not going to be able to get away from it either. Not until Christ returns. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, 
But Silas and Timothy remained there. Evidently, they weren't in danger. Only Paul, probably because he was the tip of the spear. You know, their, their primary spokesman in the gospel and in witnessing. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, 200 plus miles to the south. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. They left Berea to join Paul. The first key to witnessing is to keep trying. Keep trying. Keep on keeping on. Keep at it. Try, try again. That's what Paul did. That's what he did all over the place. But certainly here in Thessalonica, look at verse 2 again. He went in, it says, as was his custom. Like he tried over and over again to witness so many times that it was known or he became known for doing so. Like that was the guy's custom. Paul, witnessing. Paul, trying over and over again. Synonymous. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He tried again. Didn't accomplish what he wanted to on the first Sabbath. Went back the second time. Didn't accomplish there. Went back the third time. He kept trying. And all of that in Thessalonica and then on to, into Berea after he had been beaten for trying to witness in Philippi and imprisoned for it. And before that, suffering and stoning in Lystra a year or so before on the first missionary journey and, and being threatened in Iconium and persecuted everywhere that he went. And yet he kept trying. Didn't matter. He was undeterred by closed minds or closed doors. Undeterred. If one was shut, he approached another. And instead of focusing, don't miss this, instead of focusing on those who wouldn't listen, he focused on those who would. Instead of fixating on the green apples, he looked for red ones, ripe ones. So often, we, we suffer, I'll say, a massive opportunity cost. The kingdom suffers a massive opportunity cost because we're so fixated on our, our loved one or our close friend who won't have anything to do with the Lord, won't have anything to do with the gospel, has flat out rejected it multiple times from us. But so often we just keep on pounding that and beating that dead horse. Meanwhile, there are wild horses over here who are begging for the gospel. They just don't even know how to ask for it. And by fixating over here and obsessing over here, there's an opportunity cost over here. In his later years, Becky's great-grandfather made a commitment to share the Lord with at least one person every day of his life. It's not as though that was a new thing for him. He was involved in Rescue mission ministries and, and multiplying them all up and down the, the West Coast. But he also had a, a very bad asthma. And back in that day, as you can imagine, he had an asthma attack and the things weren't as good as what we have now. And, and in the middle of one of those asthma, asthma attacks, he thought he was going to die. And he called out to the Lord and he said, Lord, if, if, if you save my life, I'll, I'll witness to one person every single day for the rest of my life. The Lord saved him, and he 
went on to keep his commitment. Sometimes uh, having to go to the mall to find somebody to talk to, and just hanging out wherever he could, wherever kind of life took him that way. There was one occasion, in fact, where some of Becky's relatives were at the mall with him, and it was around Easter time, and things were kind of going on, and pretty soon they look over, and here's Grandpa kneeling with the Easter bunny in the middle of the mall. Did he lead every person to the Lord? Not at all. But he tried. He tried. And he kept trying over and over again. And truth be known, he probably met with more success than any ten of us combined. Why? Because the key to witnessing is not so much the method or the mantra, but the persistence. The persistence. That's the first key. Second is the opportunity. The opportunity from verses 16 to 23. You follow along. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but I learned a bit this week about Athens. It was home to none other than Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, some of the greatest thinkers in history, if you will. Not only that, but it was a city that birthed democracy as we know it and modern medicine. Like These weren't like backwoods, you know, people didn't know anything, what was going on or whatever. No, no, no. They were very, very forward thinking, very much ahead of their time. And not only that, but the city boasted philosophy galore and architecture upon architecture, some of which still stands today and still is awe-inspiring. Centuries and centuries later, millennia. And yet, it was full of idols and false religion. Proof positive that even smart people can get it wrong. And that even advanced, deci- advanced societies are deceived. And it bothered Paul. His spirit was provoked. It didn't sit well with him. How about you? Seriously, how about you? Like, does the lostness and the sinfulness and the empty religions that abound in our advanced society bother you? Or have you become numb to it all? Callous, maybe. Even accommodating some of it. I hope not. Because if you have, or if you do accommodate the lostness and emptiness of our society, you'll never witness to our society. You just never will. You'll never have that burden, and you certainly won't have that zeal like Paul did. His spirit was provoked, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and 
in the marketplace. This is kind of a, a change of venue for Paul. And in the marketplace, the mall of his day, every day with those who happened to be there. He went looking for people to talk to. He went looking for opportunities. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also converse with him. It wasn't just the normal people going around and, you know, scratching out a living during the day in the marketplace. It wasn't just the religious people in the synagogues, but here were the, the gurus, man, the philosophical, philosophical mucky mucks of the day. The Epicureans, you need to know, being agnostics and hedonists. Agnostics in that they thought that the gods, small g, plural, the gods could, though there were many of them, could care less about us, and so we might as well just live it up and be merry and be, and be happy. They were agnostic hedonists. Agnostic hedonists, the Epicureans. Meanwhile, the Stoics were naturalistic moralists. Naturalistic in that they believe that what you see is what you get, and that's all you get, what you see. And, and everything that you need is at your disposal within you. Hope the bells and whistles are going off about now. Everything you need is within you, maybe some without you. And so, listen, just, just be good. Just take what's at our disposal and be good. They were naturalistic moralists. Agnostic hedonists, naturalistic moralists. Sound familiar? The next time somebody says, yeah, the Bible doesn't seem very relevant, and there's nothing new under the sun. And we are exactly like that society these days. And some of them, some of these Epicureans and Stoics, verse 18 said, what does this babbler wish to say? They were down on him from the get-go. Preconceived notions, just like now. Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Kind of a, you know, an intellectual sort of thing. Uh, wrapping it up and tying it with a nice little bow. And, and, and a preacher of foreign divinities. Because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was an open area where people would gather to hear the latest greatest, probably synonymous with Mars Hills. Mars Hill in that day, uh, pictured here just below the Acropolis, if you've ever seen pictures of that or maybe have been to Athens that way. And Paul would have been standing most likely on this massive rock. They took him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. Have you ever been talking to somebody about the gospel or things of God? They're not a believer and you're, you're hearing yourself from their perspective and you're thinking, this has to sound out there. I've done that before. And if it weren't for the fact that what I was saying was true, that the gospel was true, I wouldn't keep on. May we know strange things. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And then Luke gives us a little commentary on that particular statement. Now, all the Athenians 
and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So when they said, we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean, what these strange things are, it wasn't necessarily a heart yearning like, gosh, I want to know for the sake of my eternity. It was more like, we want to know what these things mean. You know, the, kind of the, the intellectual sort of deal. So that I can kind of put this in the hopper over here. We can blend it all together and we can kind of see what comes out of it. They just spent all their days in nothing except telling or hearing something new. It was their scrolling. Telling and hearing something new on the social media platform of their day. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, which is still the case in our day and age. Even those who reject God consciously, not to mention those who just go about their day and soaking up the culture around them and conforming themselves to it, are religious. Secularism is a religion just as much as Christianity is a religion. People give themselves to it. I perceive that in every way you are very religious, same as now. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore, he says, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. A second key to witnessing is to take advantage of opportunities. Take advantage of opportunities. We saw this last week and we're going to see it again in weeks to come because that's what Paul did time after time after time. Not that it was easy. He didn't take advantage of opportunities because they were just like a, a shoe-in, no problem, you know, add water and poof. But rather, he took advantage of opportunities because his burden was great and his message was greater. That which compelled him to take advantage of the opportunities. When we were on vacation in Florida recently, maybe, what was that, like five years ago, even though it was four weeks ago or five weeks ago, we were on vacation and as we normally do at least one day of our week, we'll go to the outlet mall. Uh, and people who put those things together and build them, they know exactly what they're doing and placing them in vacation spots and all the rest, you know. And so, so we go to outlet malls and kind of my normal fare is I go quickly around and this was one of those outdoor outlet malls. I go quickly around. I visit the three or four stores that has at least some measure of interest for me and then I'm, I'm pretty much done. And I find a bench in the middle of the thoroughfare. I park myself there and I start to read and, and then I just either wait for Becky and the girls to be done or more likely I wait for them to text me because they want me to come see what they've just tried on it's like show and tell all over again. I go back to kindergarten. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> but on this particular occasion, I had sat down and hadn't been there for more than a, a minute and had my little Kindle app on my phone, was reading, and I heard a guy in front of me ask, ask me and say something like, do you think it's interesting that God has gender qualities? And I thought as I glanced up, surmising that they were Mormons, I thought, man, should I say something and respond or just tell them I'm not interested and keep reading? 
And about that moment, my mouth opened. As in, I didn't even think about my mouth opening. The Spirit of God had already determined so. And I don't say that lightly. But I mouth, my mouth opened in that moment and I said, are you implying that God is somehow feminine? Because I knew that that's what they were getting at. It's a Mormon belief. Are you implying that God is somehow feminine? And, and then I thought, there's no way that I can just sit here and allow them to advocate such heretical things that bring shame to the name and might influence the people who are sitting behind me on back-to-back -back bench and the people who are standing around and within earshot. I was like, there, there's, there's just no way. My spirit was provoked. And so I engaged them over the next, I don't even know what it was, five to ten minutes. and They would make a statement and I would most of the time have to interrupt because they would just put so many statements after another that were unbiblical and wrong. And, and so I, I, would, I would point out the error of the statement and then they'd make another statement and, and that one would come from another portion of Scripture and I'd be like, that's not what that Scripture means. The context indicates this and da-da-da-da. They literally did that. We ended up going from Genesis and then to Revelation and then back to Ephesians on it all. And pretty soon the second guy leaned over and he said, never mind. <laughs> and walked away. And I sat there wondering if that was for them to plant a seed of truth in their heart or cast a shadow of doubt for what they believed or for the people on the bench behind me. I don't know. But I sure am thankful for the filling of the Holy Spirit to have taken advantage of it. My mouth opened. That's what the Lord does. I haven't always done that. You need to know. And those missed opportunities to witness are some of my greatest regrets. Because many times you can't go back, can you? The person's long gone. Or, or if they're still in your life, their sensitivity to the things of God is, is, is over with and closed. And there's no more opportunity. Some of my greatest, some of my greatest regrets are those, those things. But this time I did take advantage of the opportunity. And it's the second key to witnessing. And I might add on that that one of my regrets in that particular conversation is that I didn't get to Jesus quick enough. If you're ever in conversations like that, get to Jesus. He is the fulcrum upon which everything turns, the hinge upon which everything turns. What someone believes about Jesus and why they believe it determines everything else. Does for us, does for them. Get to Jesus as quick as you can. That's the second key to witnessing. Third is to talk about God. Talk about God. And you might and probably are thinking, duh, like what else would we talk about? But I think that it needs saying. I think that it bears repeating over and over again. 
in this conversation about witnessing because we often talk about anything but God, even in the midst of opportunities to share. Like, we're afraid of what people might think, and so we quickly, you know, transition back to sports or back to weather or back to kids or back to something else. Or, or we don't want to risk any backlash, and so we don't say anything about God at all. And we certainly want to avoid, you know, one of those awkward moments. So we don't even mention him or anything about him. Instead, we make witnessing all about us, you know, our story, our testimony, our circumstances. Not that we shouldn't use our testimony and witnesses. Hear me on this. We should, we should. But that we should make our testimony more about God than about us. We tell those who are getting baptized all the time, don't make your testimony in the tank about you. Yes, clue us in as to the circumstances that God used to bring you to himself, to grab a hold of your life, to, to bring you to your knees so that you would surrender to him in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yes, yes, yes. But don't make the circumstances the thing with just a passing mention of Jesus. Make the circumstances the passing mention and make the rest of it all about God. Like Paul did. All he talked about here was God. In fact, he alludes to no less than 11 different attributes of God in six verses. Now follow along with me. Second part of verse 23. What therefore you worship as unknown in our day, what therefore you worship as the force, the big guy, the cosmic good, intelligent design, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, a.k.a. the creator, that's the first attribute that he alludes to, God is creator. Being Lord of heaven and earth, he's supreme, number two, does not live in temples made by man. He's transcendent. Number three, he's other than us. He's beyond us, God is. Verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. He's self-sufficient. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's benevolent. It's just God, God, God. And he's not done. Verse 26, and he made, God did, from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He's purposeful, intentional. We're not here by accident, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He's sovereign. And God is he's purposeful and he's sovereign, raising up nations at a particular time and a particular place according to his plan, which means he's also sovereign over our lives of when and where we live according to plan. Those of us who populate the nations. He's sovereign through and through. It is no accident that you exist in the first place, and it is also no accident that you live here, Quad Cities, USA, 2019. No accident. God is sovereign. Verse 27, he does all of that, that they, the nations and the people who populate them, should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He's accessible. Number eight, he's accessible. Yet he is actually not far from each 
one of us. That is, he's imminent, he's near, he's transcendent, he's above us, he's other than us. And, thank you, Lord, he's near. For, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. He quotes one of the writers that they would have been familiar with and applies it to God. Not that he was checking off on everything that the secular writer had said or written in, in, in centuries past, but that he was using something that they were familiar with. He was speaking their language and applying it to God. Amazing. For in him we live and move and have our being, proving that he's imminent. And we're in his presence, Coram Deo, as even some of your own poets have said. And he quotes another one, for, for we are indeed his offspring. In other words, he's life-giving. If we are God's offspring, metaphorically speaking, he has given us life. Life-giving. Being then, verse 29, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. And there was a slam. I got to believe that Paul, as he's standing on the massive rock of Mars Hill, he's kind of sweeping his hands and he's saying, hey, God, the true God, is not like all of these idols that you see around me and that you walked by on your way to this particular place. He's not by all of these things that were formed by the imagination of your people. Rather, he's alive. That's the point that he's making that if we are alive, being made in his image, he is alive. The final attribute that he alludes to. Given the opportunity, Paul talked about God. That's all he talked about. And we should too. Whether you start with the scriptures and talk about God incarnate, Jesus, like Paul did with the Jews because they knew and respected the scriptures, or whether you start with God the Father like he did with the Gentiles here who weren't familiar with the scriptures. Either way, he talked about God and we should too. If we're going to witness, we have to do so. And we have to get comfortable with doing so. We have to talk about God and we have to get comfortable talking about God with those who don't normally talk about God. We have to talk about God just like with other people, just like we talk about God amongst us. And the only way that I know to get comfortable in talking to people who don't normally think or talk about God is to do it. It's the only way I know. Over and over again. So that pretty soon you don't distinguish the people to whom you're talking. You're not a respecter of persons, as Peter said back in chapter 10. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't, he doesn't care like who you are, what you look like, what you believe, what you don't. And we should talk about God with the same kind of a mindset. We have to talk about him and get comfortable doing so. And notice that both approaches that Paul took, you know, whether he started with Jesus, God incarnate, or he started with God the Father, notice that both approaches end up at the same place, the gospel. The gospel. Talk about God when you witness, 
But by all means and any means, get to the gospel. Look at verses 30 to 34 in that vein. The times of ignorance, Paul goes on, ignorance where people made God in their own image. God overlooked. And he showed mercy. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That is, to admit their sin, confess their sin, and turn from their sin, including their sin of worshiping someone or something other than the true God. He commands us to repent of that. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, Jesus, on the day of his return. And of this, this judgment by Jesus, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Because Jesus lives, he will judge. Just like because he lives, he will save. Because he lives, he will save. Because he lives, he will judge. Condemning those who don't believe to an eternity of hell and welcoming those who do to an eternity of heaven. Verse 32, And now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. They were like, whatever. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Maybe conveying that we're not really sure, or, or maybe conveying that they wanted, you know, to get a little more of that intellectual stuff under their belt. Whatever the case, verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Probably, by the way, the same Dionysius who became the first bishop of Athens and was later martyred for it, killed for his faith and trust in Jesus and the gospel. Showing us once again that you never know who you're talking to and you certainly don't know their future. Which makes the last key so absolutely crucial and that is to urge people to seek him and repent. Urge people to seek him and repent. To seek God in turn and I don't know about you but to me this is the most difficult part of any witnessing opportunity. But it's a part that we absolutely, absolutely should do. Look what Paul did. Look what it says in verse 27. Having laid out the fact that God created us and placed us in the world, he did so that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. Loved ones, that's God's design and desire for our entire existence. You want to know why you live and move and, and have been right now? It's so that you would seek God and find him. That. And find him you will if you seek him with your whole heart, the Bible says. Multiple different times, several different ways. If you seek him through his word, you will find him. If you seek him among his people, you will find him. If you seek him in prayer, you will find him. We must encourage people that way when we witness. And we also must encourage them and urge them to repent. To repent. Because judgment is coming. 
And here's where that burden comes in and, and urges us to finish in our witnessing and finish in our proclamation of the gospel that people might turn and be saved. Judgment is coming. And after that, it's too late. Verse 31, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Meaning he will give us what we rightly deserve. Death and separation for those who don't seek and don't repent. And life and love for those who do. Those who believe in Jesus and turn from themselves. Turn from their way and their truth. That's how to witness. Apostle Paul style. Urge people to seek him and repent. Talk about God and get to the gospel. Take advantage of opportunities. And above all else, try, try again. Let's pray.